What I like to think about is we have an animal, an insect, with a small brain, less than a million neurons, and she wants to come back and participate in our experiment all day long. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. The humans invented the concept of zero about 2,000 years ago. It's only been in the last 40 years that researchers have determined that other animals, including monkeys, chimpanzees, and parrots, can be trained to understand the number as well. Today, in episode 31 of Parsing Science, we're joined by Adrian Dyer from RMIT and Monash University in Australia. He'll talk with us about how honeybees have recently been found to infer the number zero based solely on learning the concepts of greater than and less than. Here's Adrian Dyer. Hi, my name's Adrian Dyer. I'm a visual ecologist, and that means I like studying how vision works in very complex environments, how we see the world and how different animals see the world. And this is a fascination which started when I was a young boy, and I was just very interested how I saw things and how different people saw things differently. And my uh, first insight into that was to study photography because you can document things because I didn't even know about studying biology when I was a young boy. And so I did a photographic course and then a photographic degree and was very lucky that uh, I had a job at a university as a photographer and a professor of biology was very interested in vision and asked me to do a PhD with him. And I got involved with working with uh, animals and visual perception. And that's how I got started on bees. It was a long time ago, but uh, I think what what inspires you when you're a young man or young woman uh, often uh, influences your whole life. Doug and I began our conversation by asking Adrian where the bees that he and his team study come from and how they're trained. Uh, It's actually really interesting. So the experiments happen outdoors, so they're not in a lab environment. They're conducted on university grounds, and we have beehive or beehives set up and maintained by a professional beekeeper. And so those bees are just foraging all over campus. And then what we will set up is a small gravity feeder in close proximity to the hive. And there some bees will come and collect about 5 or 10% sucrose concentration and just take it back to the hive. And what we can do is go along with a a spoon. It's it's actually a special bee spoon, but it's a bit like a spoon. And put it under the nose of uh, one of the bees and they they stick out their proboscis and lick this and like it very much. And then we can take this bee across to a separate testing site, which is outside, and train the bee to come back to that testing site. And we put a little colour mark on her back so we know which, which bee it is. So once she comes back, that takes about an hour to train a bee to do that. We can start training them to use the apparatus and then introduce uh, visual stimuli and get them to start solving the problem. And the nice thing is because the bee will come back and do this all day long, we can give fairly long training programs so we can get good insights into how they're visually learning. What I like to think about is we have an animal or an insect with a small brain, less than a million neurons, and she wants to come back and participate in our experiment all day long, which means we can train her for a long time, but also conduct lots of control experiments, which is very important in science. 
and she just keeps coming back and participating in the experiment and she's highly motivated. So our experiments are typically designed so that all the data is collected in one day, but the bees will come back on subsequent days and some of the work we do, we're interested in their long-term memory and how memory might uh, be robust over several days or might decay depending on the type of visual problem uh, the bees have been encountered with. And this links back to, as humans ourselves, we're interested how we remember certain things and why do we forget certain things. Are these general principles in how brains operate and what are some of the rules governing that? So it's some of the other work we do. This made us wonder when it was that people first began researching sensory perception in bees, as well as what's been learned about their cognitive abilities in the time since. Carl von Frisch sort of established the principles behind this in the early part of the 20th century. And what he found was if you um, put out a visual stimulus, let's just think of a a piece of blue card and you associate that with a sugar reward, the bees will come and drink that and like it very much. They collect that nutrition, fly it back to their hive and then the same bee will come back and collect more and we'll actually do this all day long. So you can put a little colour mark on the thorax or the back of a bee and know what the bee's doing. And so he was doing classical conditioning, a bit like a a Pavlovian type conditioning, and showed that uh, bees learn and you can collect data from them all day because when they fill up their their crop or honey stomach, they take that back to the hive and give it to the other bees to make into honey for our breakfast. And then they want to come back and do your experiment again. So you can do an experiment for six, seven, eight hours a day with the same subject, which is a very rare animal model. But the collecting of data takes a very, very long time. And that's why you might see between the study in the 1990s and then a couple of studies, 2008, 2009, then our study, which is now 2018, there's big gaps in between because even the study we just published probably took uh, three, three or four years to get all the data together. Since modern bee research dates back just 100 years, Doug and I were interested in knowing what Adrian thinks might be some of the potential applications of discovering that bees can understand the concept of zero. So on the social side, a very big question is why did humans in some communities evolve the ability to think and understand the concept of zero where there seems to be other civilizations where that process didn't unfold. So what is novel thinking? What is our ability to be able to come up with new concepts? Is this a limitation of our cultural setting? Is it a limitation of our brain size? Is our brain changing with time to enable this? When we step sideways and see in comparative animal models like the parrot and now the bees, that they can understand and solve these types of apparatus, then we can pretty much make the conclusion that ancient human societies which didn't understand the concept of zero just had to be because there wasn't the need for that culture to use it. Because if they were had a complex environment where they did need to process zero, their brain would have been able to 
learn it. Or if, for example, you had a child from uh, a community which didn't process zero, but you gave them a modern education, they would probably pick this up pretty quickly because what we did was just take a bee with a fairly simple brain compared to the primate brain, teach them some rules, and they acquired that information fairly quickly, actually. Now, once we understand that about brains, it gives us some insights into how we might think about artificial intelligence. And here, when we look at comparative brain sizes, like primates and bees, and we see similar or different strategies, we can start to understand what size of brain enables very complex cognitive-like processing and what might be the neural structures which support that. So some of the work we're hoping to do in the near future, in collaboration with a few labs who have made some inroads to this already, is having a look inside the bee's brain and understand what changes we've experienced, what areas of a brain are involved in processing complex stimuli, and now we want to do uh, numerosity processing. And when we understand how that network operates, how might we be able to work with computer scientists working in artificial intelligence to come up with better solutions for, for robotic vision? Adrian and his team used a couple of different devices to teach and test their bees. So Ryan and I wanted to find out more about how they work. We use two types of apparatus to test for bees. One is a rotating screen. So this is a, a vertically presented screen of about 50 centimeters in diameter. And it enables us to present a number of different stimuli to the bees. Because it's rotating, we can, throughout the experiment, keep moving its position to randomize for spatial positions of the stimuli. And there's also multiple pegs where these are presented. And that enables the bee to see the stimuli and um, learn over a number of trials how rules might govern the differences between stimuli. In the field of working on bee vision, there's another type of apparatus called a Y-maze, and that's where a bee flies into a tunnel, and on the left or right-hand side, there's stimuli presented, and the bee must choose which one she thinks is correct. And that gives very good control over the visual angle at which the bee makes decision, and it's a very well-accepted technique for understanding bee cognition. And so because our data of the concept of zero was so important to understand, we just repeated the experiments with both types of apparatuses, which give different perspectives or potentially might give different answers. But both ways we tested the bees gave very consistent results, so we knew we had a very robust finding. The Russian psychologist Ivan Pavlov famously discovered classical conditioning. In his research with dogs, he repeatedly paired a potent natural stimulus, food, with a previously neutral stimulus, sound. In doing so, he was able to cause dogs to salivate in anticipation of the food simply by making the sound. Doug and I asked Adrian how many times a bee has to have a behavior reinforced in a similar way for it to reliably produce the behavior. I was discussing this with my uh, children the other day, actually. So in some previous work, we showed that honeybees can very reliably learn to recognize and encode faces, including human faces. 
And the period of time it takes them to acquire that information is about uh, somewhere between 80 and 100 decisions, which seems to be faster than what we expect from vertebrates. This is well reproduced by a number of groups now in different labs and in different models, actually. So we, we showed that honeybees could recognize faces very reliably. And then Elizabeth Tibbetts in Arizona in, in the US showed that wasps could learn to code faces very reliably. And she had a major paper in science on that. So it it's interesting that insects appear to be able to learn some visual concepts faster than uh, vertebrates do. And it might just come back to what is their lifespan. So a, a foraging bee may be only foraging for a few days in their life. They need to be able to learn very complex information very quickly. And they have a brain which seems to be very good at doing this. Flower colors are believed to have evolved over 100 million years ago in response to their bee pollinators' color vision. So Brian and I were interested in learning what the quality of bees' vision is like. So the honeybee has a very different color visual system. They are also trichromatic, but they have an ultraviolet sensitive photoreceptor, a blue and a green sensitive photoreceptor. And if you go out into the garden and look at many flowers, about 20 to 30% of flowers actually have reflectance properties in the ultraviolet. So they've evolved to suit the visual system of the most important pollinators, which are typically bees. And so it's a very different visual system to how we see. It's on the color side. And then on the spatial side, the spatial resolution is much poorer than ours. What spatial resolution relates to, everyone can probably think of going to the optometrist or the doctor and having to read a a funny-looking chart of ALTCN, and you're reading progressively down the lines, they're not actually very interested in your ability to recognize the letters. They're testing the resolution of your eye. Our resolution, because we have a lens eye, is actually very, very good. But a honeybee, because they have a very small body, they don't use lens eyes because diffraction would uh, really wreck their color vision. They have a compound eye. And the compound eye is not very accurate at seeing detail at a distance, but when you get very close to an item like a flower, then they see reasonably sharply the image. Bees are well known for their intelligence and industriousness, as well as their ability to communicate the presence of food to others in their hive. Given this, we asked Adrian how he and his team prevented the trained bees from teaching their nestmates about the sugar water in the experiments. In the experiment we published, we just had control mechanisms to exclude that. Um, and that's basically having a, a gravity feeder which captures the attention of the other bees. So if you haven't actually trained them to use the apparatus, the other bees don't get attracted. It's, it's a complex scenario because if you control the distances between the hive and the testing apparatus and you keep that at about 20 or 25 metres. At that distance, the bees are only doing what's called a round dance. There they, um, they signal that there's food rewards out there, but they're not actually giving specific um, vector information about where it is. So our, our test bee might be going back to the hive and, uh, and doing a round dance and going, hey, there's great food out there. And the other bees go, yeah, we know, we know, and they just go to the gravity feeder. 
if the distances get further, um, then the bees do their waggle dance and you would have a problem. But uh, a bit like a bike working, um, you just sort of have all this whole situation in control and just tune nicely. For some other experimental work, people are, are very interested in um, social learning of bees. And this is work being driven by uh, La Shikra and Queen Mary University of London. And there they do actively allow a bee to recruit another bee or to, to let another bee watch and they're interested how the interactions um, improve learning. But we actually, in our experiment, went to a lot of lengths to totally exclude that because we wanted to look at individuals. Next, Ryan and I were interested in finding out more about how the bees in the study were specifically trained to understand the concept of zero. To understand whether an animal might perceive a concept of zero is actually a, a complex set of experiments because you need to unpack data on several different levels to see, A, if it might be confounds like low-level explanations, and B, to understand is zero being processed relative to higher numbers. So the first thing we did was train bees with stimuli with elements of one, two, three or four. So if you think of a six by six centimeter piece of uh, white paper and it's containing some different elements on it, this might be squares or triangles or circles, for example. And then a bee comes along and she sees maybe two elements and four elements. So if we're teaching her the rule of choose less than, she has to choose two as the correct answer. Once she's made some choices and filled her crop, she flies back to the hive to give to the other bees and gives us a chance to clean everything and she comes back. But now she sees one and two elements displayed. She might first go to two going, oh, that worked last time, but she finds that's not the correct answer this time and she actually gets a bitter tasting quinine hemisulfate, which they don't like the taste of, so it promotes learning. So on this experiment, number one's a correct answer. And this goes on for, for several hours until she learns the way to solve this problem is to always choose the number less than. And then we present the bee with a novel problem of um, some of the ambiguous numbers, two or three. So these are ambiguous because about half the time they're rewarding and half the time they're not, depending if the alternative, what the alternative number was. And then we present this number against a blank sheet. And if they're using a simple associative type mechanism, they should just go to the number which is presented. But if they're using a rule of less than, then they should choose the sheet with no items on it. And that's what the bees did, or statistically speaking, they did that between 60 and 70% of the time. Now, that was a little bit interesting. So that's suggestive of our understanding the, the concept of zero. The team didn't stop there, however, as we'll hear after this short break. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. 
Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to parsing science. After teaching bees the less-than rule, the team then tested whether the bees could apply that learning to a novel task, namely choosing a blank card representing one less than one, or zero. Here's Adrian Dyer. As is often the case in science, you have many potential confounds. So then we had to do um, preference experiments. So we trained bees on just some numbers, but not actually teaching them a specific rule. And so there's an associative mechanism, just go to numbers. And then we gave them a presentation of novel numbers of either zero, a blank sheet, or one. They'd never seen these before. And here they went to the number one. So it had an element. And so if they hadn't specifically been taught the less than rule, then the bees didn't just by preference go to a blank sheet. So that excluded that factor. And then one of the most important pieces of information or evidence for animals, and this includes non-human primates or even young human children, of their ability to understand zero is that there's a number ordering effect. So zero versus one is a difficult task. Zero versus two is a bit easier. And as you get to larger numbers, zero versus five or six, it becomes much easier for the visual system to process this. And it means that the numbers are perceived as being in order. And these, all these experiments are done with independent bees, um, which is important for the, the statistical analyses. And so in an, another separate experiment, we trained bees to different pairs. So they had to choose less than again, but when they get tested with zero versus one or zero versus two, zero versus five, zero versus six, we saw that their accuracy was significantly higher for the um, larger number differences, which is consistent with the evidence. So the number sequence experiment is uh, very important because it's been established previously by other researchers that in young children that there's number sequence effects. So a larger number difference compared to zero is perceived more accurately. And this has also been shown in non-human primates. And so it's taken as one of the key pieces of evidence that zero is processed in relation to a number sequence which fits one of the formal definitions for what zero is. Since the minimum sample size necessary for a study depends on the data analyses that a researcher plans to carry out, we asked Adrian how his team went about determining how many bees to include in their experiments. In honeybee experiments like we do, we have very tight control over the type of stimuli which are presented to the bees, and we can test a number of individuals in a very careful way, typically about 10 bees, is regarded as um, fairly robust for pulling apart factors of whether they can detect stimuli or process stimuli. Now, to support this, we do um, fairly robust statistics. And if you get consistent bees, which we observed in our experiments, of what was reported, that was the entirety of the bees tested. So every bee who was tested was able to acquire these rules. And you start getting 10 bees which are tested, 
and consistently performing at uh, 70 to 80% accuracy, the p-values start approaching uh, much less than 1 in 100 to much less than 1 in 1,000, which is regarded as fairly robust. But then what we do is repeat the experiment with different types of apparatus, and you get consistent results again. And then you do extra control experiments where you vary some other factors and you see consistent results again. So you know that results are very, very uh, robust. Both in e-letters posted to Science Magazine's website, as well as in vigorous debate on Reddit, commenters have suggested that the bees may have been differentiating the cards used in the study by way of their lightness or darkness rather than arithmetic. However, Adrian and his team designed the cards so that, except obviously for the blank zero card, they all had the same ratio of black to white, as he explains next. Brightness is what you'd call an associative type mechanism. So is there a low level explanation which would explain the results? That's why we did a number of control experiments to show that this is not the case. So what we did was continually change the stimuli throughout the experiment. So even though they might be viewing three versus four, those shapes changed and the configuration of those shapes were always changing. But the overall brightness between all the stimuli was equal. Then when the bees had to solve the testing problems, they had to extrapolate the information, the rules they had been taught. They had to extrapolate that to solve the concept of zero. Now, any associative mechanism, and we did lots of computer modeling on this, any associative mechanism would have given us the opposite answer. So you have the experiment in balance. If they were just using an associative mechanism, they should have chosen the opposite to choosing the uh, blank zero stimulus. But since they were able to apply the rule, that showed they comprehended the context of the information. That, in collaboration with the number order sequence experiment, so the fact that with increasing magnitude, their accuracy improved, is taken as a fairly robust set of evidence that they were doing numerical processing rather than a low-level queue. Um, Previous researchers have shown that bees can count, so you put all these pieces of information together to be able to understand how the bees were solving the problem. Lastly, we couldn't resist asking Adrian whether he or the study's lead author, Scarlett Howard, often get stung by bees in their work, and if so, whether they've grown accustomed to it. I've been working uh, in a professional sense with uh, bees, both bumblebees and honeybees, for about 18 years now, and I have never been stung while working with bees and neither has Scarlet, to the best of my knowledge. And so we have fairly careful lab protocols for how you work with bees. But also, if you work with bees and you treat with a lot of respect, you're very clean with how you use all your, your stimuli, which you need to do for scientific robustness anyhow. It's a fairly calm, relaxed environment. Usually, the way people get stung with bees is being careless with food or drink and something gets spilt and there's some sugary material around. Or once I was stung on a foot by a honeybee, but that was when I was six years old 
and my mother told me not to walk across the grass because there were flowers and bees and being a six-year-old boy I ignored her and the bees taught me an important lesson of always listen to mum and so that was my fault not the bees but in a professional sense um, the way we run the lab we don't get stung but I don't want to give listeners the impression that to be cavalier with bees in this regard we have a beekeeper who very carefully manages a hive and the hive has a queen who has um, very fresh pheromones so she's in good control of her hive and because it's well maintained the bees are not aggressive at all and so it's fairly easy to recruit them to do an experiment when i say fairly easy it takes several hours but it's just a protocol we go through and there's really no issue with um with bees being aggressive or stung. So it's, that's not to mean that you should approach any bee or beehive, but in a university setting, we're able to uh, set up a protocol so it's not a problem. That was Adrian Dyer discussing the article Numerical Ordering of Zero in Honeybees, which he published with Scarlett Howard and four other researchers in the June 8, 2018 issue of the journal Science. You'll find a link to their paper on parsingscience.org e31 along with bonus content and other material that he discussed during the episode. Though we launched it just a few weeks ago, Parsing Science's weekly newsletter continues to be a big hit. You can sign up at parsingscience.org newsletter. Or if you'd like to check out our first three issues, go to parsingscience.org newsarchive. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Mike Vitovich from the University of Kansas. He'll talk with us about his research into the speech-to-song illusion, in which a repeated spoken phrase results in it being perceived as if it's being sung. We have this misconception, I think, in, in perception and in memory, too, that, you know, what we see is what we get. And there's a lot of construction going on for memories as well as for perception. We hope that you'll join us again.